Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Michelle Elman, the upcoming author of the book, The Joy of Being Selfish. So, Michelle, I was looking at your website, and you got some real intense topics that I, I can't wait to dive into. You wrote another book called uh, Am I Ugly? You have a, a TEDx of, uh, let's see, have you hated your body enough today? I mean, there's a lot going on there. Uh, I can't wait to hear more of your story. I didn't quite realize how many clickbait titles I use, but yeah, um, they are quite intense titles and um, the topics, I guess I don't really shy away from the taboo topics. I think for me, it's always been more interesting to talk about something that no one else is talking about. And I don't really have a lot of shame or stigma that we get brought up with, whether it's body image or boundaries or um, even just emotions. Sometimes we stigmatize that and don't let people talk about their feelings or even just things like crying. All of those topics have been always most interesting to me. And I don't really know where that came from, other than the fact that I, I think inherently we just have certain interests. And for me, it's always been how people think, how people communicate with each other um and ultimately emotions and feelings which is what landed me uh doing life coaching i think that's awesome i mean it's really courageous to get out there and just like look at the demons in the eyes and look at it face on and start to talk for so much just hidden shame that people carry around all the time yeah absolutely and i think where my shame started was that i had a lot of surgeries when i was 15 years old and I actually was completely the opposite to everything I just said in that I didn't talk about any of the surgeries for until I was 21. So bearing in mind, I started having those surgeries when I was one years old. I had 15 surgeries before the age of 19. You wouldn't have known because I never wanted to show my scars. I never wanted to talk about them. Even my best friends, most of them didn't know I had surgeries. And I would just go into hospital discreetly and come out of hospital, be missing from school for a few days. And that silence definitely bred shame. And I think a big piece of, especially my body image work in the past was showing that actually, if we don't talk about it, you feel like you're the only person in the world and you're never alone going through what you're going through. And it was only from a... Um, almost like a factual standpoint that I started wondering when I was like 20 years old I can't be the only one with surgery scars so why do we never hear about it and so that's when I was like you know what I'm confident now I can talk about this if if I want someone to be talking about it why not me and that's where my first book and the start of my life coaching journey I guess began that's fantastic so uh on this show, I want to hear a lot more about that, right? I want to hear about that personal surgery piece. So if you could kind of extend that out for our listeners, I'm curious a couple of things. One, what the condition was, if you're willing to share that online that resulted in the surgeries. And then also how you were making sense over that, you know, first 20 years of your life. Did so it change? I, Did your relationship change and evolve or what was it like? Yeah. Give us the, give us the rundown. 
I've had 15 surgeries from a brain tumor, a punctured intestine, a cyst in my brain, a obstructed bowel. I'm going to forget something. Pretty much every organ that you can be operated on, I've ticked that box. Um, and a lot of people are like, well, why? Or what's the cause of it? Then isn't always a cause to it. Some people are just unlucky with health. And I was unlucky. Like within a year, I was having, I think I'd had three surgeries in my first year of life. And um, it was just one thing after another. And, um, oh, and I have a condition called hydrocephalus, which means you have too much water in your brain. Um, and I think I struggled to make sense of it because the problem with going through those issues when you are at the ages of... I was at was you don't have the language for it most adults don't have the language for it let alone when you actually don't have the language for it because you're still learning how to talk to speak um to communicate pain and so um it was kind of this I guess it, I was very much brought up with you are no different to your brother my brother's less than a year older than me and so he's never had a health problem in his life and so my parents always brought me up with the idea that I can do anything I want anything I put my mind to I'm no different um and I guess the flip side of that was I never took a moment long enough to appreciate that what I did go through was actually a big deal. And it all kind of came crashing down when I was 19 years old um, in my final year of university. And I got diagnosed with PTSD. And essentially, it was all those secrets I was keeping inside me, all the things that I was pushing down in order to come across as normal or not different was the goal. I think sometimes in schools, especially, you want to conform, you don't want to stand out. And so I think that was my worst fear was standing out and um, being different. And different is not a bad thing. But at that age, I thought it was. Yeah. What did you think that people would judge you for or, or say? What would happen if they found out these secrets that you were holding? Well, I think it stemmed from when I was 10 years old. I think there was a, there's a point where you're not actually very conscious of your body as a child. Mm -hmm. Um, so you see the differences but you don't really think one is better than the other and so obviously I'd seen my brother's stomach when like we had baths or whatever um, I've seen my parents stomach I didn't notice I of course I knew I had scars on my stomach I just didn't really clock it as a thing that in the same way people have blue eyes and brown eyes um, and then I went to a birthday party where um I was I wanted to wear a bikini for the first time and I came out and when I came out it wasn't just like my friends it was the parents who looked at my scars with like shock and pity and oh, yeah. horror at some points um and I think for me the worst one was pity was because like, I didn't even really have the word for pity but I just knew it made me feel bad um so I think it was from that moment forward I was just like yeah this is something that makes some people uncomfortable let's not talk about it whereas I was too young to know, actually, that's their discomfort. That belongs to them. It has nothing to do with me. Absolutely, right? You can't control other people's reactions. Exactly. So you're saying in your 20s, you started, you got diagnosed with PTSD, and then you started to work on this. Did you seek therapy or get into any kind of program or was it self-taught? How did you start to overcome some of this PTSD and shame you were carrying around? So I was always um, in intending to go into the psychology field so I was doing a degree in psychology and I was intending to be a psychologist mm -hmm. um, so in my final year I went to therapy and I started unpicking some of it but I found that talking therapy wasn't working for me it's a great approach and it works for many many people in the world for me it felt quite limited past the cathartic um talking about it for the first point for the mm -hmm. first time in my life I didn't find it was helping any of my symptoms 
or relieving any of the feelings I had. And so I started searching for other approaches. Um, just from a curiosity standpoint, I found uh, hypnotherapy and just thought it was like sounded interesting. And through that, I actually found uh, neuro-linguistic programming and something called havening um, and all the things that have now led to life coaching. It's I use life coach as an umbrella term, but underneath it, all the techniques and the models that I use are um, neuro-linguistic programming, timeline therapy, um, parts of hypnotherapy. And uh, the thing that specifically helped me the most was havening, which is a form of hypnotherapy, but works on the idea that trauma occurs when you're unable to escape a situation and therefore you don't need to relive it because when you're doing talking therapy you're actually strengthening those neural pathways and instead you need to actually break that pathway by interrupting it and it's it makes for quite a funny thing to watch as an observer because it's things like singing happy birthday when you're thinking of the memory, but it means that your neural pathway can't run in the same way and you disrupt that pattern. And that's how your body unlearns that, oh, this is, you're not reliving the situation. It's not happening to you again. Because I think um, it's really important to, to understand that our unconscious mind and our conscious mind don't know the difference. So um, if I started talking about biting into a lemon, your mouth would start salivating, at least mine is. And that's because the lemon doesn't need to be there for your body to react to it. So in the same way, when I started re uh, thinking about all of these past memories, all these past surgeries, my body was reacting to that too. Right. So this havening practice sounds like really helped you to short circuit that trauma thing that was happening so that you could be more present in the moment and move forward in your life. How did you enact that during your life? Like, where, did you bust out seeing happy birthday when you would have a symptom or would you find ways to kind of hard shift your mental state? Did you do any of the, like, uh, the priming stuff from neuro linguistic programming? So it, was, it was a, it was one session with a havening practitioner and I don't think I would have the confidence to do it myself. <laughs> um, it's also a technique that you have to learn. And so, um, yeah, it was that one session and I think it allowed me to get enough distance from my, um, it allowed me to get enough distance from the physical symptoms I was experiencing to actually work on the emotional stuff as well. Okay, very cool. So you do that. And then what's the next step in your journey? Did you just start becoming a life coach then? Or how did you keep moving uh, forward? Yeah. Within the next year, I trained and qualified as a life coach. Uh, it was a transformative year, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started working with clients the, the following year. And um, it all happened quite quickly. I think when you uh, know and approach yourself personally and can vouch for the fact that it works and have the personal experience of using it on your own issues, you are able to be more, more um, effective in the way you work with clients. And so I think it was simply that, like a lot of people focus on the fact that, especially when you talk about NLP, it's like not researched, all of these things. And frankly, when you have a client in the chair wanting help, if it works, they don't care why it works. And that was essentially what I went off. It was like, I don't care that it's not researched. It's the one thing that really helped me. Um, and I believe in it and have been using it ever since. So it's what, eight years now of life coaching. Um, and yeah, we all start somewhere. And that's that was where my journey started. And I'm so grateful I happened to discover this 
other approach of helping people because I think that was the original intention behind becoming a psychologist was I always wanted to help people with their emotional um issues and also because that's always the thing that's interested me and then um I got to that roadblock where I was like oh well how can I be a convincing psychologist when talking therapy doesn't work for me and then you're forced to find a different approach Right. And really practicing what you preach is huge, right? Because the clients are going to pick up on that integrity. They're going to pick up with the fact that you've been down that path. And it sounds like they are drawn to you, right? It's very magnetizing to be like, okay, wow, this person really does know what they're talking about. They're not, you know, selling something that they don't know works for themselves. Absolutely. And to this day, I don't recommend any exercise I haven't done myself. And if I do an exercise and it doesn't work, then I don't share it. So <laughs> it's quite simple in the fact that you get the best of the best of what when I recommend something, you get the best of the best because I've tried it all. And if it doesn't work, then I won't mention it. So tell me more about the ambition then, right? Because you got your life coaching practice going and then you want to step on doing TED Talks and now you're writing books. So how do you, what kind of message do you want to get out there to people? When I think about that, I think of increasing impact and really reaching the mass market. What inspired you to do that? Yeah, so I think for me, when I first started, um, it was, was really about staying outside my comfort zone so around um especially the first year I started life coaching I made myself a very simple rule that I can't say no because I'm scared I can only say no because I actually don't want to do it or because I physically can't do it like timing wise and so that meant I said yes to everything and the point when it was challenged the most was when I was asked to give a TED talk and I wanted to say no because I was so scared that I had told myself things like oh I don't so TED Talk's really important that they emphasize one message in your talk so you're not meant to be um, giving a talk with 10 messages it just has to be very focused on one and I told myself I didn't just have one message and so I couldn't dilute my message down to one message um, and you tell yourself all these stories but I had this rule so I said yes figured it out later um, and I'm so glad I did because that evolved my public speaking the kind of training you get when you work with ted is amazing um and it allowed me especially within what changed most around my public speaking was the fact that ted really taught me how important it was to emotionally connect with what you were saying so a lot of my story is obviously very personal and I think almost as a protection mechanism, when I would get on stage, I would say it very matter of fact. A lot of people have said when I list my surgeries, I almost list, it's as if I list my grocery list. Like it's so devoid of any emotion. And I said to them, I, well, I can't emotionally connect to this talk because if I do, then I will cry on stage. And they were like, so cry on stage then. And so I, I remember the dress rehearsal. It was a 12. 12 minute talk and I cried for six minutes of it and at the end I went see that's why I told you I can't cry um and they were like what was wrong with that and I was like you couldn't even hear me for six minutes of it and they were like yeah but on stage it, you will naturally stop yourself from crying that much um but do it exactly like that and I was like you're joking you to <laughs> on stage and cry for half the time of course when when I actually and I mean the TED talk was two days later this was the dress rehearsal but they were right when you're actually on stage there are moments in my TED talk you can see me breaking up and um tears coming into my eyes but I never actually get to the point of bawling because you have that awareness that 300 600 people are watching you and then of course online there are so many more I think it's up to 50,000 people have watched it um 
And so you you catch yourself, you take a breath and you keep talking. But actually being able to deliver that talk with emotions is so much more impactful than this um, distant kind of public speaking that I was very accustomed to doing. Yeah, that's incredible. I love that. It sounds like it's so much more evocative, right, when there's emotion attached to it. And people can really feel it because I think it's so, yeah, so easy to numb out from all the atrocity and, and awful things that happen in the world. But I think stepping into it, it is really charismatic and really powerful. Absolutely. And using it. Yeah, right. Using it to help other people and to inspire others. Um, I'm curious. So your most recent book is about the joy of being selfish. What interests you in that topic? Well, I just found that I worked so hard around my body image and loving my body that I got to a point where I was like, I love my body, but I'm not really sure I like myself because there was something about the fact that I was surrounded by people who were treating me so badly that didn't quite fit in with everything else um, in my life. And I think there was this wake up call where I was like, why do I have friends and the boyfriend at the time that I was with um, who treat me really badly? And there must be some self-esteem element underneath that. And the antidote to that was boundaries. As I said, I don't really um, promote anything that I haven't tried myself and boundaries are the single most revolutionary thing I have done in my own life um, through life coaching. That's fantastic. That's awesome. I can't wait to talk more about that in our next segment. So we're going to wrap up this one now, go into a commercial break. But when we come back, I want to hear more about your views on selfish. That's such a loaded word, especially for many, I think women in particularly around being selfish and not, and then about boundaries, right? Um, I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners to get your perspective and, and your journey through that. So for those who are tuning in, uh, hang on. I'll catch you on the other side of the commercial break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. 
Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back. I'm sitting here with Michelle Elman, the author of... The Joy of Being Selfish, and the self-proclaimed, or I guess follow-proclaimed, Queen of Boundaries. Um, I want to talk more about this idea of selfish because I see it a ton in my practice, uh, psychotherapy practice, where it's just this wall that people hit, right? I'll be like, hey, have you tried talking to this person about how you feel? Or have you tried doing this or doing that? Or you know, things like that. They're like, no, I don't want to be selfish. And it's just like a full e-break stop that really paralyzes a lot of people. What was it like for you dealing with that internal voice? Well, I just found it interesting that we're so all about self-love and self-care. And then you say selfish. And again, you hit, as you said, you hit this wall. And I think ultimately it comes down to not caring about people's opinions. And I know that's very easy to say, especially because it's actually evolutionary for us to care about people's opinions. But it's the point of the fact that when you are trying to make time for self-love and self-care you actually have to put someone lower on your their on your priority list in order to put yourself higher so we can talk about the superficial stuff we can talk about the concept of self-love and self-care but the practical stuff is in order for you to make time for yourself someone else needs to have that time removed from them and so it's I think it's important you talk about that side because otherwise they get through the difficult part of being name called either being called selfish being called rude arrogant for setting boundaries and then they go oh why is this happening to me you didn't prepare me for this you just told me it was going to be a really fun easy joyful experience of setting boundaries but you didn't tell me that like my friends might get really annoyed at me or my family might be like why have you changed and all of these aspects of it that are important to talk about as well yeah so i see this show up 
in almost all of my female clients. And I'm wondering if in the work that you do or in your own life, if you've seen a gender difference around female messaging, around being selfish and around being, you know, agreeable and available and, you know, always there for your family. I, I, I see a lot of that with the women that I work with. Is that true on your end too? Absolutely. And I think it's why selfish has more potency than many of the other words, because it's this idea that you're a bad person if you don't take care of the people around you. I think it's ingrained from a very early age, especially with women, that we are the caretakers of the world, that we are meant to be serving to others. We are meant to make make sure that we're a good wife, good partner, good um, girlfriend, good uh, daughter, good mother, good colleague, good boss. But as long as you take care of everyone around you, you will be happy. When actually a lot of the time that will mean you're burnt out, you are filled with anger and resentment because you're having your boundaries crossed and you're not standing up for yourself. And I think this idea of being, I think even the flip side, selfless is seen as such a compliment um, to women when actually it really shouldn't be because why should we have to forget ourselves and put ourselves bottom of our list in order to feel like we're good enough for the rest of the world. And that's why it's so important to start Uh, evaluating whether you're good enough based off you and yourself and not what other people think and actually having really good boundaries means saying when someone calls you selfish you going you're allowed to think that I don't actually need to change that opinion that opinion can exist and it can also not be true yeah I think that's very beautifully said this idea of letting other people have their own reaction to you and that it's not you know your job to manage all that right there's so many people that live I think this is what you're saying in that constant caretaker mode the constant management mode always living with their identity in the eyes of other people where when I see those people in my therapy office and I'm sure when you see them in your life coaching office they're just like you said angry resentful burnt out bitter like kind of mean underneath it all right because they've been suppressing all that aggression that it, it just either turns inwards or just explodes in the worst possible moments. I think it's quite ironic because it's seen as such a nice thing to do to put everyone else first. But actually, those people are very rarely nice. They think they're nice, but actually, as you never said, nice. They're yeah. meaningless because of course you would be if you yeah. never do anything for yourself if you never get to live your life for you of course you'll be mean when I didn't have good boundaries I was the queen of instead of boundaries queen of passive aggressive comments I would make so many digs and then when when I got called out on it I'd be like it's just a joke why are you being so sensitive that's a horrible way to be and it's like they're they're not being sensitive I was making a mean joke and I just didn't have the confidence in myself to say what I needed to say directly. And so I squeezed it out into a joke rather than standing behind my words and actually saying with my chest what I actually wanted to say. And so it's also about authenticity. And once you actually get good at saying what you mean and meaning what you say, that becomes a big part of the boundary setting as well. Yeah, and it builds up that internal self-esteem because now you're living in integrity. You know that you're not living a lie, you're not squashing parts of yourself, you're standing up for yourself. And also then you're surrounded by people who actually like you for you rather than for what you can do, what they can do for what you can do for them. Um, and I think a lot of the time when we're people pleasing, it's actually a little bit manipulative because you are changing who you are to get them to like you, regardless of who you actually are. And so actually, when I started losing lots of friends um, around setting boundaries, which again is a unglamorous side of self-love and self-care is when you set boundaries you will lose the people around you who expected you to be a pushover who expected you to a pe- to be a people pleaser and actually I got to the point in my life where I was a bit like 
actually, it's kind of fair that they're leaving my life. They didn't agree to be friends with a boundaried woman. They agreed to be friends with a pushover. And I am so completely different from that person now that it totally makes sense that they don't want to be friends with me anymore. But I think it's having that confidence to know that it's going to pay off in the end. And when you make space, when you get rid of anyone in your life, I truly believe that the people who fill that gap are people who are going to be better aligned to who you actually are now. Yeah. So tell me about that process, because I think it's a common theme in any recovery process, right? Whether it be from mental health, from body image, from shame, from addiction, whatever it is, there seems to be this shedding process, right? Where it's shedding community, shedding behavior, shedding habits. And there's a lot of grief and loss in that, but there's also a lot of power, which I hear you talking to. So what was, what was your journey with setting these boundaries and starting to rediscover yourself? Absolutely. So the first time you start setting boundaries, or even as you said, it could be body image. Um, when you start changing, what initially happens is people will go more intense in an, a bid to try to convince you to not change. So yeah. they will call you the names, they will um, persuade you to go back on the diet, whatever it is, all the bad behaviors that um, you're trying to get away from, they will convince you and be more persistent in trying to get you to to do to return back to your old ways because they like the old you. Once they realize you're not changing, that's when they'll leave your life. And that's when you can start doubting, well, if, if there were more than one people leaving my life at the same time, surely I'm the one in the wrong. And actually, it's not about wrong or right. It's about whether you're suited to each other. And it's important to remember, I think especially when it comes to friendships, there's so much shame around losing friends because there's so much time and space given to romantic breakups that we don't really talk about friendship loss. And it can hurt just as much. Yet if you told someone that you just lost your best friend of seven years, you sound like a 13-year-old in a playground. Whereas if you said you broke up with your boyfriend of seven years, you'd be met with so much sympathy. And so I think it's important that you validate the feelings that you have, but don't use that loss or that feeling of grief as confirmation that you made the wrong decision. Because you didn't. You can miss them. You can want them, want them, their memories without wanting them back in your life. And you can also keep those memories without having them back in your life and recognizing that if it costs you losing people in your life, the cost of you of losing those people mean that you get to keep yourself and you get to keep yourself uh, with your integrity and your authenticity and you will attract people who are actually similar to you now. And if you change in different directions, sometimes you can actually change back into the same direction, but don't hold on hope for that because that can be more painful than just grieving the loss and moving on. Yeah, I really, really resonate with what you're saying. Of As you get healthier, you attract healthier people. You kind of sync up in the same vibration, for lack of a better term, right? And, you, and you, all of a sudden, the people that, you know, seemed out of reach, or maybe you just seemed kind of boring, or you would just look over, it's like, oh, wait, no, this person has something going on, you know? Absolutely. And I also think so with the boundary, with having lack of boundaries, it meant I attracted a lot of people who took advantage of it. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I also attracted because my life was a bit of a mess and I was going through PTSD and all of those things. I attracted a lot of people who had savior complexes where the dynamic depended on me being the mess. Mm -hmm. I was in friendship groups where the joke was Michelle is a mess. So I can't really evolve or grow in any way. And I can't really be the life coach that I wanted to be if I was the, if the running joke. And I, I think we get 
we we have this narrative around jokes of being like, oh, well, you're too sensitive. As I said before, I was guilty of it too. I said it as well. And I think we need to be very careful about the jokes we're making about ourselves because I think our brain is listening and our brain doesn't know it's a joke. Yeah, I think that's very true. I Tell me more about that dynamic because I think that happens, right? Where you have people saying, oh, Michelle's a mess, but we love her anyway or she's part of their group. And I can only imagine that you must have felt some level of unconditional love through that. But it's a little bit darker, right? It's also pigeonholing you into that role of being the hot mess, of being the one that people have to take care of. Well, I think it's a self-esteem thing where at least I might be the mess of the group, but at least I'm in the group. And if that's the purpose I have to serve within the group, if that's the role I have to play in order to be accepted, in order to be like, I'll play that role because I'd rather have a role than be in the back and have no friends in school or whatever it is. And so I think that's what inevitably happens. But even if they're not doing it consciously, when you're making fun of a certain person, so it's not necessarily saying someone's a mess, it could be the person in your friendship group who you say their love life is specifically a mess. So it's not like every area of their life, but they're the person who can't get their love life together. It is a one-upmanship where you're trying to put someone down. And again, I don't think it's always done maliciously or intentionally even, but when you're when you're feeling better about yourself because you're not the person who everyone's calling a mess, or you're feeling better about yourself because, oh, at least my love life isn't as bad as insert random person that you make fun of, then you have that moment of relief about your own insecurity. And I think it's important to start building these friendship groups where the bonding isn't happening over unkind or mean jokes. Instead, finding yourself a friendship group where when someone makes a joke like that about anyone, not even necessarily about you, you go, hey, don't do that. That was mean. Or, hey, we're better than that. Let's let's find a better conversation talk, topic than to be bonding over how awful or how wrong or I told you so. All of these things that become, oh, well, I'm just being a good friend. When actually you're not. If it makes me feel bad, you're not being a good friend. Yeah, there's some great examples of boundaries. Yeah. Right? I'm curious, what are some other ones that our listeners should look out for? maybe specifically in friend groups or in relationships and things that they should be, you know, kind of those big red no lines that they should make sure that are not being crossed. So I think one of my favorite ones at the moment is do not speak to me that way. I just think it's always going to be one of my favorites because it's one of the first ones I learned and I didn't actually, it didn't occur to me you could say that to someone until my life coach told me to say that to someone and I was like, you can't say that. She was like, why can't you say that? I was like, I don't know, I've just never thought to say that um and so if someone's swearing at you don't speak to me like that if someone's raising their voice um I also think it it, boundaries are very personal so boundaries aren't one size fits all but for example one of my strongest boundaries is body shaming so if a friend comments on what I eat a friend comments on um what I'm wearing all of these things I don't want comments on my body, my body, my business. And I will say, please stop talking about my body. Let's talk about something more interesting. If they persist, I will say, if you're going to keep talking about my body, then I'm going to go into the other room and you can come find me when you want to talk about something else. And it's I'm very clear and distinct around that, especially around friendships and relationships as well. I think it's important to have good time boundaries. So when people actually, I used to have a lot of friends who used to turn up two hours late and I would still be waiting there. Nowadays, Ooh, even- yeah, I hate that. <laughs> absolutely hate that because time is, gen- it's a cliche, but time is my most precious commodity. I don't like my time being wasted. 
I hate those people who walk around telling you how busy they are, but I am busy and I, so I don't want my time wasted and I have better things to do than sit and wait. And so I will wait for people for up to 20 minutes, especially across London. If you're late, it's quite hard to be like two minutes late or usually 20 minutes late. Anything past that, I'll be like, hey, let's go for lunch another day. I'm leaving and I will actually leave. No one forced me to sit there and wait for two hours. And so it's about taking accountability of your stuff too. Yeah, I think that's really wise, right? The boundary has to be internal as well as external. And being like, I'm not going to live in this world anymore. I'm not going to choose to suffer and sit there for two hours in anxiety or, or in shame, right? Of like, this person doesn't like me. Where are they? What happened to them? Am I not worth it? Like, you have control over that. Like you said, you can remove yourself from the situation and do something that you love. Absolutely. So I'm curious more around this boundary thing. What is the... What's the hardest boundary you've ever had to set? What was the one that took, you know, all the planning, all the courage, all the strength to get uh, out there? Definitely family boundaries. I yeah. didn't you could set boundaries with your family. Um, but to be fair, in all areas of my life, I didn't know you could set boundaries. But I think the problem with family is that it's uh, your longest relationships, your most ingrained patterns. And there is a unsaid and sometimes said narrative of it. It is how it's always been and you, sh you shouldn't rock the boat. And so having to set boundaries, especially in a culture which you don't speak to your parents like that, um, meant that I got a lot of reactions from people who just didn't like the new me. And so it was, a, it was about being persistent with it and also being firm in your boundaries and knowing that what I was doing and what I was saying was within was being polite, was being compassionate. And so even if you call me rude, even if you call me mean, I know for a fact it's not true because I've actually chosen each word deliberately. Yeah, I like that. What's your strategy for that? Like, do you write it down? Do you practice with your life coach? Do you rehearse? How do you make sure that the boundary comes out clear and direct? I think the main thing for me is to be able to process the emotion separately. So I'll never do it in the heat of the moment. I think sometimes we feel the pressure to do it in the heat of the moment because you feel like you'll miss your chance when actually there's no time limit on boundaries. You can say something like, hey, you know that conversation we had a week ago? It didn't really sit right with me. And can we talk about it? And you're ba basically opening up a conversation that happened a week ago. You can do it a month later. You can even bring it up years later and say, hey, I know we've had this dynamic so far. I'm changing it right now. And so it, in order to process your emotions, I think you need to remove any anger or resentment you're feeling. You'll need, you need to be able to separate what's actually coming from your past and what's coming from the situation in front of you. And so therefore I go into each conversation emotionally neutral. I think that's great. I think that is the value of having a life coach or a therapist or a confidant where you can vent, right? You can vent out all the emotions so that when you're with the person, you can be very assertive and clear and direct about the boundaries. Um, so we're going to move to our commercial break now. When we come back, we like to give something to the audience. So we'll talk about, you know, strategies for being more selfish, right? Or how to set boundaries or anything that you'd like to give from the book or from your coaching practice uh, for someone that's listening that resonates with your story. So for those of you uh, listening, thanks for tuning in. And if you like this episode, please share it on social media. Send to someone you think might benefit from it. We all can use more boundaries out there. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call one 888 346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back. I'm sitting here with Michelle Elman, the uh, queen of boundaries. And in this final segment, we like to give something to the listeners, right? Something they can take away. And I think, Michelle, what you've been talking about must be so ubiquitous for people out there. I know I've struggled with it. I think almost everybody in my practice for the past decade has struggled with it. Boundaries, selfishness, self-esteem. So what would you give to somebody who's listened to this podcast and is like, oh my God, this is me. I, I have these issues. What are my first steps? Yeah, I remember when I first was setting boundaries, the most basic thing I struggled with was actually the language, how to actually phrase a boundary. 
And so a lot of the time it would be sitting in my life coach's office and actually having her text, like type out a text. It's also why in the book I put a lot of practical examples. Even on my Instagram, I'm always giving you word for word what to actually say. Um, But the most basic language we have around boundaries is the word no. And you knew how to use it until we got something called theory of mind, which means, so when you're three, four years old, you become aware of the fact that other people think. And if other people can think, that means they can think about you. And so that's when it starts getting more complicated to say no. But until that point, if someone took your toy, you would yell no. And so it's being able to use that word again without thinking about other people. And the best place to start is with strangers. So when you're at a restaurant and a waiter asks you whether whether you like your food, actually saying no if you don't like your food and actually being honest in that moment. This is not a person you have a long-term relationship with. Frankly, the waiter's not that invested in whether you like your food or not and they don't care that much. It's just their job. And so you can say no to that person and practice that muscle of saying no. If you're at the hairdressers and they ask you if you're happy, actually saying no if you're not. And having those moments of honesty, having those moments of authenticity builds the, the because comp- I think there's a lot of competence around confidence and builds the competence around, oh, I actually can do this. And the fallout doesn't ha- always have to be bad. And you will have moments where the fallout is awful. I call it the backlash of boundaries. But Sometimes you will be shocked, you will shock yourself if you spend hours preparing exactly how to phrase your boundary and then you go and have the conversation and actually go, wow, that that went a lot easier than I thought it was. I was playing all these worst what ifs in my brain and actually the reality of it was it wasn't that bad. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. It it makes a lot of sense. And a lot of my parts, I work with this idea of feedback and giving people honest feedback because just like you're saying in those examples of the waiter or the, or the hairdresser, or even we get a little bit closer to friends, if they never know that they've upset you or that they've done something that doesn't work for you, they're never going to change. And they're living in this world of delusion, right? Where they think they're a fantastic hairdresser because everyone they ask always says that they love their haircut, right? They then never have an opportunity to actually improve as a person or get better at something that they actually care about, you know? Absolutely. And when it comes to relationships, uh, personal relationships, I think we have this expectation that people can read our minds, that they know us well enough, so they should know. And I think that sentence is awful because it gets in the way of so many opportunities for communication that we don't take because we think they should know. Don't depend on people being a mind reader. This idea that they can read your mind is also dependent on this idea that human is humans are predictable. And we're not predictable. One day you might want a hug. One day you might want a conversation. And so ask for what you need. And the other flip side, the other phrase that I absolutely hate is, well, if I ask for it, it doesn't mean as much. So if you ask someone who, and you know what? I've tried it. I've asked people to literally tell me, well done. And when they tell you, well done, it still feels like a well done. <laughs> <laughs> it still first, feels good yeah it still feels good and even if for you it doesn't because I'm not going to say that's the same for everyone but it, even for you if it doesn't I can promise the second time they say well done because you've told them in the past that you like being told well done is is um actually going to feel meaningful and that person is going to remember because they actually care about you whereas this this idea that in order for them to care, they should be able to read your mind or they should know exactly what you want whenever you want and that they know your response to every single situation. It's just an unreliable way to do it. Yeah, there's such a common mental prison, us expecting that people can just read and know. But it comes with this really kind of dangerous assumption that everyone thinks and feels and knows it's the same as we do. 
And, you know, I've seen in my practice, you've definitely seen in your practice, like people are really different. Like when you crack open, you know, the brain and you look at what's going in, people are really different. They notice totally different things. You know, you and I are going to have a totally different memory of this conversation when we leave. And we just had the same conversation. It's wild. But I also think it was part of my boundaries lesson that I realized actually really good boundaries is not assuming everyone wants what I want. So as I said, like, I love hugs. I'm a very affectionate person and I would give hugs out without asking people. And actually all it takes is me going, do you want a hug right now? Or can I give you a hug right now? Rather than just assuming. And it's good for both people because just because I like hugs doesn't mean they like hugs. And so it's actually good boundaries to check with someone. That if So it's small things like, do you want my opinion or do you just want me to listen? Or can I give you a, my opinion on this? Not just giving unsolicited comfort because you think it would help them in that situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then sometimes that can be, like you said, misattuned or in worst case, it can be enabling. It could be perpetuating a pattern that's not helpful for either of you. It's even small things. Like uh, this week, someone said to me, um, they, they, I had a work thing that was a big accomplishment. And when they, before they said, I, I'm so proud of you, they said, sorry, that's really patronizing. And I went, no, I love I'm so proud of you. Like, But it's this idea that they could potentially have not said they were proud of me because they were worried it would come across as patronizing. And it's sometimes we get in our own heads rather than just saying it out loud, saying to someone, hey, do you like it when someone says, I'm so proud of you? And I'm like, yeah, I love it. And then you don't need to worry whether you're being patronizing or whether it's a weird thing to say because you just ask the person, the person tells you yes, then go ahead. Yeah, you can actually check it out with people. Wild, right? (laughs) Instead of having to make assumptions and guess, you can actually ask people what they want. It's crazy. Mind-blowing, honestly. Yeah. Uh, So that was good advice on boundaries. What do you have on body positivity and self-love? You know, if there's someone listening that is like, I hate how I look, I hate, you know, how I feel, I hate my scars, I hate my weight, I hate my appearance, whatever it is, what first step would you recommend for somebody there? So I I believe in something I called evidences. So so whenever you have a belief, a belief is simply a thought plus evidence. And so if you have the belief, I am ugly, you have taken a thought, the thought I am ugly, and then built evidence around it. So my mum told me to lose weight. My partner um, told me to get changed the other day when we were about to go out for dinner. And you collect up all these micro moments of like all these things and go, this is proof and evidence that I am ugly. And then there are moments which don't mean anything, but you assign meaning to it. So let's say you walk down the street and someone honks at you. If you're ugly, you'll go, see, that's proof that I'm ugly. If, you're, if you have the belief, I am beautiful, then you'll go, see, that's proof I'm beautiful. And so it's important we actually start looking at what those evidences are. So I talk about beliefs like tabletops and evidences are the table legs. And so you knock off all the table legs and you build a new table. So think about the limiting belief that's obstructing uh, you believing that you're beautiful. Maybe it is just, I am ugly or I um, am too fat or whatever it is. And then think of the positive opposite belief. So with I am ugly, it would be I am beautiful. And then this is going to sound crazy, but I want you to write a hundred reasons why you are beautiful and actually search for that evidence. And whenever I tell people that they're like, I get stumped at 10 and I'm like, just sit there. Just keep sitting there until more will come. Uh, there's almost a second wave that comes. And once the second wave comes, they more pour out of you. But when I first did it, 
took me three hours. I sat there and maybe you want to do it on a Sunday where like you actually have the time to sit there. But I sat in the same chair and I was like, we're not leaving this chair until I've written a hundred reasons why I'm beautiful. You need to believe you're beautiful before anyone else does because you're not going to see the evidence out in the world unless you have that belief already. But once you have a hundred reasons why you are attractive, why you are beautiful, why someone would like the way you look, why you should like the way you look, then it's really hard to dispute that fact because that evidence or that belief because no belief is actually a fact and so it's just whether you have enough evidence to prove your belief right or prove your belief wrong yeah do you reference that list that's something that you keep with you or that you kind of hold on to uh, I kept my so I kept two lists with me for a while I didn't do keep the beautiful one because to be honest it was just more testing out the exercise when I did it because I already believed I was beautiful but there were two ones that really changed my life was uh, I was looking for an agent in my job and I was looking for an agent for two years so I wrote a hundred reasons why someone would want me as a client and I got an agent like two months later and I don't think it was coincidence and the other one I wrote was a hundred reasons why I'm dateable um, and lovable. And I use that one because every time I lost hope while I was dating, I um, used to look at that list and it was actually really helpful to keep it in an accessible place. So, so I recommend the notes section of your phone um, and you keep it there. You can look at it anytime that you have that doubt. But even just if you did the exercise and you threw it in the bin, you've created those reasons and that mental energy you put in. And I also recommend doing it with a pen and pen and paper because it takes more time. It embeds it in your, your neurology deeper. Even if you never look at it again, I think it's done its work. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I have something similar around my purpose in life principles that I keep and I, you know, update every year and say like, hey, do I still believe this? Do I want to change that? What's going on? I see it as kind of a like DNA for who I am. And it's Absolutely. something that I reference when I have those moments where either my ethics are tested or when I feel lost or when I feel confused, uh, when I make a hard decision. It's really good to have things like that that are external and are a good reminder so that when we're feeling a little bit crazy or emotional, there's like some sanity, right? There's like a little harbor of sanity that we can go to be like, oh yeah, like I am lovable. Oh yeah, like I am a good person, you know? I think it's really important to write things down. Like I even say it when you're going through a breakup, like write all the reasons why you made that decision because the mind is a fickle thing. I don't rely on my memory. My memory is awful. And so your your brain can tell you so many stories and sometimes you get lost in it. And so even with the stories I tell myself in my head, I will literally write on a piece of paper the story I'm telling myself versus the truth. That's fantastic. Well, this has been a fantastic interview. It's been really inspirational, super helpful. I hope that our listeners out there are able to take away some of this advice because I love that it's both practical, real, authentic, and just kind of, you can tell that it's born from true experience. So as we're wrapping up here, Michelle, can you let people know where they can find you if they want to learn more about you and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my two books are Am I Ugly and The Joy of Being Selfish. Online, I am at most things on uh, scarred not scared on tiktok and uh, instagram is my main platform but also twitter and other things out there um i have a podcast called in all honesty and my website is www.michellelman.com that's great well thank you so much for joining us and for those listening out there have a great week and we'll see you next time on another episode of from the ashes Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. 
Meet Triumph and Defeat and treat those two imposters the same. 